I'm Lillian Vasquez with Lifestyles on KVCR. Thanks for listening. As we share in Black History Month, my guest is guitarist, jazz vocalist, and songwriter Alan Harris. His upcoming performance of Cross That River is a musical that tells the story of Blue, a runaway slave who becomes one of America's first black cowboys. Alan will share more about the musical's meaning, his time growing up in Harlem, and his music. Here's my conversation with Alan Harris. Ellen, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. So we need to talk about your upcoming performance of Celebration of American Black History with Cross the River, where you'll be at the Old Town Temecula Community Theater on February 10th. But first, I want to get to know you just a little bit better. So I have to say, I appreciate the description about you, the warmth of Tony Bennett, the rhythmic of Sinatra, and the elegance of Nat King Cole. And from the videos and performances that I looked at, I'd say they're spot on. So let's talk about growing up in New York. Did music come into your your life as a little boy? Were you singing or playing an instrument? And are you from a family of musicians? Tell me a little bit about growing up in New York. Oh, well, it was wonderful. I had a very broad upbringing. My mother was a classical pianist. She and my aunt were in the first graduating class from performing arts. And that was a school that um, was featured on the TV series, Fame, I'm Gonna Live Forever. Oh, yeah. Debbie Allen. My mother graduated. She was the first graduating class. Her best friend was Arthur Mitchell from Dance Theater of Harlem. So there was a myriad of talented people who she grew up with. So in my household, many musicians came through there. I mean, Leontine Price, Arthur Mitchell, um, even Louis Armstrong every now and then. Why? Because my aunt had a child out of wedlock by Clarence Williams, who was Bessie Smith's manager, and we spent weekends with him. So I was surrounded by music. I couldn't help it. I couldn't run from this uh, <laughs> life that I have now. And maybe you wouldn't have wanted to. I mean, or, or, or did you want to be playing sports? Or tell me what it was like, uh, you know, when did you choose that this was the thing for you? Was it as a young boy? I played sports, you know, I played basketball and football, went to school for basketball college, but, you know, I wasn't NBA quality. But I always played music. I played guitar and piano. And uh, I remember I went to Catholic school for the first 10 years of my life. There was a talent contest when I was in the third grade. And my mother, of course, she was a somewhat of a celebrity with some of the nuns. They knew who she was. And they had a recital, and I was picked as one of the kids to do something to recital, my mother said, you're going to sing. I said, sing? She said, yes. So she taught me a song on the piano, Blue Velvet. And you know, she wore blue velvet. We did a Tony Bennett version. Yes. And I was young. I was in third grade, and I remember getting up in front of the class, nervous as heck. And as I sang it, the first few bars, the nun stopped me, and I thought she was going to admonish me. <laughs> she went and got two of the other nuns and the principal, made me sing the song over. Oh. I saw the mouths of my peers, they hit the floor as I sang. So I think that was it. That was the bug. It hit me. Oh, my goodness. So did you take piano lessons and guitar lessons? Were you a natural? Mm-hmm. Did you pick it up on your own? Tell me, share a little bit of that. I took piano lessons with my mother and with Thelma Pyle on Riverside Drive, who was a friend of Lynn Bernstein. And she also was a teacher of my mother. Uh, my mother was a prodigy. Mm-hmm. And to make a long story short, my mother was a very strict disciplinarian. Mm. So I played piano a little bit, but I, it really didn't hit me because I was surrounded by it, and I wasn't enamored with it the way my mother was. And I remember 
my aunt Theodosia, who lived in the brownstone with us in Brooklyn, she bought me a guitar for my birthday. My mother didn't want me to play guitar. She Mm-mm. just didn't. So we kept it hidden in my aunt's apartment <laughs> above us. And my mother, when she was out, I'd always go upstairs and play it. And she caught me one time. She said, okay, if you're going to play guitar, you're going to get serious. So she got me lessons oh. with a Vladimir Barbary, who was the president of the Classical Guild at that time in New York. Mm. So I took lessons with him to get my finger-picking style together and learn theory. And uh, that started me on this journey of playing guitar with my voice and there I just took off. Wow, wonderful. So you got to admire a mom that says, all right, if that's what you're choosing behind my back and you're good at it, then we're going to really focus on it. And you ran with it. I did. And I appreciate that she did that to me. Not at the time. Right. But I, pre- <laughs> but I, but I appreciate it. And I love that she did that because it gave me not just an edge on life. It you know, developed a discipline as far as practicing and Focus. Making up. Thank you, my dear. Focus. It has to this day. Yeah. So, how old were you when you started studying and really taking it a little more seriously than you had maybe perhaps in the piano? Not that you weren't, but when did you say, This is what I want to do? I know you liked it as a kid in school, but when Mm -hmm. you really said, Okay, this is where I'm going. My grandfather has a a horse farm, which we still own. He's dead now, but my father and my brother running and I'm there all the time oh. in western Pennsylvania we moved there when I was 13 and I started to listen to rock and roll and uh, everything from Led Zeppelin to Earth, Wind and Fire and I remember going into Pittsburgh and it was a jam session I was 16 years old and I got up on stage this jam session run by a guy named Roger Humphreys who played with George Benson very wonderful drummer I know wow. him to this day wow I got on stage and started to play, and he stopped the band. And it was a crowd full of people. He stopped the band, and he looked at me and said, Son, you got to learn a song before you get up on the stage again. And he really admonished me and embarrassed me. And that was it. From that moment on, I got really serious and started mm. to study. Oh, it was, a, it, was a, it was a hard pill to swallow. Sounds like you had a couple of those maybe that you just go, okay. I did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm, someone's telling me, but good advice. You got focus, and you turned to another corner, right? I really did. And he did it in a very, well, it wasn't gentle the way he did it, but mm. I admired him, and I loved the players who played with him. And uh, I wanted not, you know, I just wanted to show myself in a better light. So for the next year and a half, I really studied. And in reading and learning more about you, jazz was your thing. Was jazz the first genre you ventured into? You did talk about liking rock and roll, and mm-hmm. what did you first venture into? Well, I guess jazz was the first genre which I which I picked up on. Why? Because of my family's association in Harlem. My aunt owned a soul food restaurant around the corner from the Apollo, and I go there every oh. Sunday as kid. Wow! And yes, kid. Wow. On Sunday it's called Kate's Soul Food. Oh. There's an album by Jimmy Smith, the organ player, called Home Cooking. He's standing in front of it, and at Sundays I would go up there, and because the children got in for matinee for free at the Apollo. Yeah. But before we go to the matinee, we'd have something to eat at my aunt's restaurant, and I see everyone come through there, the Temptations, Sarah Vaughn, Marvin Gaye. They'd all go and get their food. Oh, my. So I think, yeah, I know. I look back upon that, and I pinch myself, you know, why was I more cognizant oh. then? And I, so I was always surrounded by not just jazz, but by R&B, country. I, it, it was just an eclectic, world that I grew up in because of my family. 
exposed me to everything. So I never really, per se, was serious about jazz. It was just part of who I was growing up. Got it. Listen to it. Now, let's talk about the Cross the River, a tale of the mm. Black West. Share the story of Blue. Mm. Well, Blue is right before the onslaught of the Civil War, 1859. He was a slave on a plantation in northwestern Louisiana. That's where I pictured it, on the Sabine River, which separated Louisiana from Texas. He runs away just as the Civil War is getting underway, but he wasn't cognizant of it. He runs away into Texas and is befriended by an Irish rancher who teaches him the ropes of how to be a cowboy because he finds that this boy, Blue, is very good with the horses because that's what he did on the plantation. He took care of the master's horses. So the play takes him from learning to be a cowboy from 1859. Civil War starts. The Civil War didn't affect where he was because he's now in western Texas. And it takes him on the cattle, the first cattle drives right after the Civil War, 1865. And along the way, on these cattle drives, he meets Native American Indians, male order women, disgruntled Confederate soldiers who have lost everything and now are out there riding on these trails alongside men, of, men and women of color, homesteaders. So the play takes you from the Circle T Ranch, the fictitious ranch, across the Red River, up the cattle trail, the Chisholm Trail, to Abilene, where they put the cattle on the railroad and ship it to the stock markets in Chicago because meat was depleted from the Civil War. And that's the story. And, and we take his adventure, who he meets, and we have song and prose and libretto, and that's what the play's about. Got it. So was the story always brewing in your head, and why was it important for you to write? Well... The catalyst of that was I used to spend my summers on my grandfather's farm riding horses. And working there were men of color, men and women of color, who roped and rode. And they were all different ilks, white, black, Indians. A few of them, because Pittsburgh is it's out, right outside of Pittsburgh, was my, it still is my family's uh, small ranch. Is the convolution of three rivers, the Monongahela, Ohio River, and Allegheny River. A lot of people from the West, after the turn of the 20th century, when the cattle drives no longer were in effect because the railroad was now, they all ventured back, especially people of color, they ventured back to the East to get jobs, and some of them became porters on trains, and some of them stopped and worked in Pittsburgh outside of Pittsburgh, because it was a very agrarian area. My grandfather hired some of these men and women, and I got to, as a young child, see some of their descendants and ride and learn with them on my grandfather's farm. So there was a summer where I went out there and I learned to ride, and I came back to school, and ironically enough, it was third grade again. <laughs> Sister Frances Anthony. <laughs> Each child had the... Every week, maybe 10 children, because you sat in alphabetical order in the class with the nuns, you had to do something, write about what you did for the summer, recite a poem, whatever. So I wrote about what I did for the summer, and I was admonished. You know, I remember one of the nuns saying to me, there are no black cowboys. Oh. I said, well, I, I, yeah, it, was, it hit me really hard. Mm. I said, well, I beg to differ. 
I, I, of course, I was in that erudite at the time. I don't think I said I beg the difference. Right, of course. Third, you know, I said, no, I don't think so. Yeah, that sounds about right for a third grader, <laughs> sure. Yeah. So she admonished me, and I went home and told my father and my mother. My father went up there and showed her pictures of my grandfather's place. Right on. Men on horses of color, and that just quiet everybody. Mm. And that's lived with me mm. until maybe 1999. It's lived with me. I just decided to write some songs based upon my experience and create this historical fiction, the story based on fiction and history. And that's where Carstyle River came about. So it was brewing in your head for a long time then, from third grade on. Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. awesome. So let's talk about some of the songs in the production. Share some of them with me or the ones that you enjoy singing or the crowd audience loves or share that a little bit with me. Well, the opening song is a, is a song called Cross That River, and it's a thread to the play. I know there's a free place way across that river Where the wild ponies run and play One day I'm gonna get there If it takes me a lifetime A lifetime of being a slave meet earth, wind, and fire sort of vibe. (laughs) (laughs) It's really wild. And uh, the crowd loves it. And from there, we pick it up into the theme, which is Blue's song. Mm. Blue is angry. And uh, each character in the play, and there's many of them, they each have a song which they sing. It's based upon their adventures that Blue introduces with them because he works on the cattle drive with them, and as well as we start on the plantation, and we take it to the ranch, and then we take it to the cattle drives, beginning inception of the cattle drives. When people see it, they're going to enjoy it, because we've been getting not just rave reviews, which is nice, but we've been getting people who actually have tears in their eyes at the end of the play, because it's a story about America, mm-hmm. seen through the eyes of a person of color. Some of the... Lines that you have in there are quite, uh, I mean, it's real, it's what happened, but it's still, gosh, you just hate hearing it sometimes in in today's world. What does crossing the river symbolize? Oh, crossing the river is a metaphor for a lot of things. It's just not crossing the river, escaping from slavery. It's each one of us crosses a river in our mind to develop ourselves, whether it's to develop our character develop our growth as a human being, our morals, crossing that river into a new beginning of life, crossing that river to discover things that that are inside of us, and it doesn't have to be traumatic, just crossing something that enhances what we are, and everyone Mm -hmm. has something in them that we get to express. Mm -hmm. I'm envious of those who get to express it earlier in their life, but it, you know, Whatever period in your life that you can cross that river in your mind, that's what the play says. The play talks about crossing that moment, that moment in your life where you cross that Rubicon, Mm. and all of a sudden the light bulb goes off, and you give yourself permission to do what it is you are supposed to do from birth. Hmm. Wow. You wrote the music and the lyrics. Which comes first? It depends. It depends, like the chicken and the egg thing, you know? Yeah. It really depends. Sometimes I'll hear a rhythm, rhythm of 
the tires rolling or um, someone laughing. It it depends. Some songs you struggle to write because you're trying to create an atmosphere of understanding for your public. And as an artist and as a musician, you have to take that musician hat off sometime and become Mm. almost a poet and a bard. And that's hard sometimes. There's songs that I've written in in 15 minutes, and there's songs that have taken me a month to write. It depends. Yeah, it, it really depends on the character of the subject that I'm writing about and also where I am as a human being at that time that I decided to write that song. Sure. The mood that I'm in, you know, right. am I in a, a foul mood or am I in a happy mood or is it a nice day or am I surrounded by friends who support? It it, it varies. There's so many um, variables that go into writing a song for me and it's never a perfect moment. You know, I, I envy those who could just disappear into the mountains for like a month like a hermit and sit at a desk burning the, the late night candle and write. I've done that, but sometimes I'll need the influx of people around me, noise and excitement, to really stir those creative juices. So it depends there. Hmm, got it. Your troupe performed for the Kennedy Center that was recorded or broadcast, and, and one youngster asked you, if you could go back in time and live like a cowboy, would you? Do you remember your answer? I don't, but I can tell you what it is now. Okay. Yeah, I would. <laughs> that was your answer then, too, but go ahead. Oh, was it? Oh, okay. But as I'm older now and the, the adornments of uh, of childhood have fallen away, which I'm trying to hold on to them because it's an innocence I don't want to lose, but I guess when you get old, you become disgruntled and cynical, which I'm trying not to be, uh, which is why I surround myself with very loving people who mm. are positive. I've noticed that being, it was rough back then. (laughs) It was rough. It wasn't, you know, there was no Charmin or, you know, or or Hulu. Right. It was a different world. You were 12 hours in a saddle on a rank horse that sometimes would stomp you in the morning. You had to lasso it every morning and gentle it a little bit because it was a rank stock-bred half-Mustang pony. They called them, and you had to deal with the weather, whether it was cold, hot, or whether you hurt yourself or strain your ankle. Didn't matter. The cattle had to be taken to market because that's what it was. And plus, you had to run into the disgruntled folks that you would run into. You know, sure, you would still choose to uh, to do that. I would because there's a certain honesty about meeting people who live off the land and make their living and have a pride about things that they do based upon just them and an animal and the agrarian lifestyle. There's something about it that I'm really drawn to. I mean, I've done it not on the level of a cowboy. I mean, I've not been on a cattle drive for like 90 days with it, you know, in a hailstorm. Sure. With 1,500 head of cattle on the stampede, I would not know what that was about. I'd probably be crying like a baby if it happened. <laughs> but just a few times that I have been on small cattle drives, and I've been overnight trips many times with wonderful men who are true cowboys on great horses, there's a certain camaraderie that mm. comes with that, and it's a certain 
closest that you get when you look up at night and you see all those stars yeah. and you hear a horse nickering. You get a whiff of, of, uh, of cattle and alfalfa hay. It's just something that makes you appreciate where we are as a human being mm. right now. Talking about Cross the River, what character mm-hmm. is, I don't want to say your favorite, or um, but that you feel strongly about? Is there a particular character mm. in that production? Yeah, I'm really drawn toward the women mm. now, now that I'm older. I've stepped out of my skin as the cowboy, you know, riding into the sunset, and mm-hmm. I've started to look at the major part that women played in building the West. And the more I start to lay back as a man, and the older that I am, and I'm a little more mellower, I really understand what women had to go through. And mm. not, that's not talking about the hardships of childbirth. and Although you know, that's not real easy either, but go ahead. <laughs> you know, which, is, which is really deep. 75% of the women died in childbirth in right. the West. Yeah. What they had to deal with was, and I have a song about that. It's called It's Easy to Be Invisible. I have a song in the play which is poignant. The crowd just goes crazy after she sings it. One of my characters. Kisses on the brow, running through the house, cuts and scrapes on as she leaves. It's not easy to be invisible, not easy to be in someone else's world. And she sings about how she's never being seen, never being heard. All she is is just taking care of children and cooking for these cowboys. They don't want to hear her opinion. Mm. The only time that they really turn to her is when they're in a desperate time of need, Mm, Right. when something traumatic has happened. Then they run to the women, and then they find out just how important the women are, not just for them to comfort and to be their comfort, how women have this insight because they are told to be quiet and they are observant of what's going on, they have solutions and answers that men need. I want to ask you, talk to me about educating our youth about black history. Teaching them about black history has a different ilk to it now. It's not just you're black and this is what you need to learn. They know. What they need to know is that through this play, that we are part of this thing that has built this country, not just as slaves, Mm. but there was a noble profession we had. We were cowboys alongside of our white counterparts. We slept under the same sky. We slept together on the hard ground. We ate the same food. Mm. We even got paid the same. It was the Mm. first affirmative action. Mm. We got paid the same because... A cow doesn't care who's roping it, and a horse don't care what color you are as long as you ride. Mm. And the trail boss and the ranch owner didn't care what color you were. All he cared about is that you had enough grit to stay in that saddle and get his cattle to market. That's all he cared about. So there was no time for prejudice on the trail, none at all, none at all. As a matter of fact, anyone who brought that to the trail and to the drovers was admonished severely because they had no time for that. It didn't matter what color you were, you right. know. And that's what I'm trying to teach children, that we work together. Very good. Ellen, thank you so much for that little bit of history. I, 
I love that uh, you pull that all together and you tie it in your story. But now I'm going to ask you a little something about your your other life and career. You performed mm-hmm. with some big artists in the industry, Tony Bennett, Dionne Warwick, mm-hmm. Natalie Cole, mm-hmm. Wynton Marcellus. Can you share maybe one or two experiences with maybe any of those artists or other artists that you worked with? Well, Tony Bennett is, I love him. Tony took me under his wing for a while and showed me things about what I need to do on stage that just jettisoned my career by years. Nice. Wonderful. He really did. And I stayed with him for a while in New York, and I would have daily practices with him. It was just wonderful, sitting at his feet. Literally, he was Yeah, not many people can say that. they. Uh, yeah, that's pretty awesome. What about Natalie Cole? Oh, yes. A girlfriend of ours, Denise Rich. Mm-hmm. Her husband, Rich, was exiled from the country and very wealthy man and Clinton pardoned him. Anyway, long story short, she was doing a party at her house or park place and she called me and said, Alan, what are you doing? I said, Oh, Denise, how you doing? So I'm doing a party for Star Jones. I said, Okay, would you come over? I said, Sure. Little did I know when I got there, there was Chaka Khan, Kai oh. Lavelle, oh. Nancy Wilson oh. and uh, Natalie Cole plus the other myriad of all sorts of celebrities and singers there, just sitting around, having fun, and hanging out. Denise Rich, and I walked into it. And Denise said, you should sing a song. I was beside myself. I said, in front of, I can't sing a song in front of these legends. She said, don't sing a song. So the piano player, ironically enough, I knew who the piano player was. And I got up and sang a song. And Nancy Wilson came up and gave me a big hug. She said, oh, you were wonderful, thank you. Natalie Cole came up and said, can I sing with you? I said, what? Of course. And we did. We did Unforgettable. She hugged me. The place went crazy. She hugged me and she said, I wish my father was alive to see you sing. He would be so proud. That was a tatamont experience for me. Ellen, thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute delight speaking with you, getting to know you, and learning about Cross the River. We look forward to it when it comes to our Inland Empire region. Thank you so much. Thank you, dear. I can't wait to get there. Cross That River will be at the Old Town Temecula Community Theater Saturday, February 10th. For more information about the event and about Alan Harris, visit us at kvcrnews.org slash lifestyles and click on today's show. That's our show for this week. To hear any of our past shows, check out our archives at kvcrnews.org slash lifestyles or listen to Lifestyles on the KVCR app. You can also listen to Lifestyles in your favorite streaming service. Search for Lifestyles with Lillian Vasquez and take that show on the go. Lifestyles is on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks to all who helped to make this show possible, including Sharina Wad, David Fleming, Sean Houlihan, and executive producer Rick Dulock. Our theme music is provided by Ethan Bortnick. Join me next week at the same time for Lifestyles with me, Lillian Vasquez. Bye for now.